Welcome to COVID-19 Disease Overview. What do we now know? My name is Dr. Patrick Taylor, and I serve as the medical director for the COVID therapeutics team at GlaxoSmithKline, as well as the president and CEO of York Hospital in Maine. A couple of disclosures. This talk is sponsored by GlaxoSmithKline, and the content is considered non-promotional and is intended to support disease state education. You know, as we look at the global timeline of COVID-19, in December of 2019, an increase in number of pneumonia cases caused by an unknown pathogen occurred in Wuhan, China. The virus causing these infections was subsequently later, later identified as a novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, and the disease was named Coronavirus Disease 2019, now known as COVID-19 by the World Health Organization. Ultimately, the disease spread throughout China and other parts of the world, and the WHO declared a pandemic on March 11th in 2020. Uh, when we look at the timeline of this disease, in May of uh, 2020, the World Health Organization adopted a resolution to fight the pandemic. Unfortunately, at that point, we already had over 10 million cases confirmed globally and there were over 500,000 deaths globally. Subsequently, in October, the United States FDA issued its first EUAs for multiple anti-SARS-CoV-2 monoclonal antibodies, and at that point, we already had over a million deaths globally. Subsequently, in December of last year, the FDA issued EUA for two mRNA COVID-19 vaccines. And then by May of this year of 2021, the FDA had issued EUAs for 10 treatments for COVID-19 and three vaccines. We are now looking into vaccines. Treatment options continue to be a challenge for us and variants of concern continue to highlight uh, the top of the, of the news medically. When we look at COVID-19 and we look at the risk factors, age alone seems to be a significant risk factor for both mortality and severe disease. We know as we age that our immune system naturally deteriorates. But additionally, it, age alone, as you can see, being a risk factor, but it isn't just linear. You can see that once you get to around 60 years of age and then the subsequent de decades, both the morbidity and mortality continue to escalate significantly. Additionally, we know that there are other comorbidities uh, for hospitalization and severe disease in adults. We do know that SARS-CoV-19 is predominantly a pulmonary disease, you know, that causes fever and aches and shortness of breath and headaches, but the underlying comorbidities make you more susceptible to the severity of the disease and unfortunately deaths. And those include such things as hypertension, obesity, diabetes in the metabolic disease patients, cardiovascular disease, and lung disease. When we look at racial and ethnic minorities, there appears in the epidemiology data to see that certain ethnicities, such as American Indians and Blacks and Hispanic population, are disproportionately affected by the disease. And we believe that predominantly this is driven by the socioeconomic factors of these populations 
and the high exposure environments in which they both live and work. And we, even when we look across other countries, a lot of the risk factors in these minority groups are consistent with unfortunately having a very fragile healthcare system and higher uh, exposure because of dense population, their inability to social distance and their inability to work from home as many of us have done through this uh, pandemic. The pathophysiology of COVID-19, it progresses as we know, some patients remain asymptomatic and unfortunately some patients continue to progress to all the way to severe illness and even critical illness, which typically involves multi-system organ failure. And when we look at what's happening at the at cellular level in our bodies uh, with COVID-19, initially it's a viral response. So we have an initial viral response phase uh, in significantly in those patients that are asymptomatic and have mild disease. But as patients progress to more severe illness and critical illness, it's actually our own body's inflammatory response that is the predominant thing that we see in these patients and actually believe that it's the, our own body's inflammatory response that is part of the significant uh, damage that we see uh, at the different tissue level of COVID-19. And many of the drug therapies are looking to aim at suppressing the inflammatory response in the severe and critical illness patients. We look at a viral immune response. Initially, uh, it occurs in two phases. The first is a triggers a release of interferons and cytokines, and it may contribute to some of the symptoms that we initially see, such as fever and muscle aches. But then a lot of our own cells, such as eosinophils and macrophages and neutrophils, are called upon uh, in that innate immune space. Subsequently, we get to develop an adaptive immune response, which is driven by helper T cells and cytotox cytotoxic T cells, which ultimately are required for us to develop some type of long-term protective immunity. And also, these cells help to clear the virus and help to clear infected cells. Looking at COVID-19 and alternative treatment options, even though vaccines have been transformational, vaccines may not be enough. That the reason for that is the virus continues to mutate as we've seen even as early as to date. Herd immunity will take significant time because herd immunity is not just dependent on any one area, one, any one country. This is a global pandemic. And so achieving herd immunity across the entire globe will take a significant amount of time. And yes, we've seen uh, even in the the places in the globe where they have significant access to vaccine, we've seen vaccine hesitancy, and that remains a significant problem. So monoclonal antibodies, neutralizing monoclonal antibodies have been developed, and several of them have gotten EUA approval from the FDA that target the SARS-CoV-2 virus, specifically the spike protein of that virus. Now, they can be classified according to where the monoclonal antibody binds. You can see the classification sites here from one all the way to four in the monoclonal antibodies. And again, classified by where they actually bind. So in this uh, graphic, the gray part is actually depicts the spike protein, specifically the receptor binding domain of the spike protein. The various colored uh, spaghetti-like 
animations are the various uh, monoclonal antibodies classified uh, depending on where they they bind. So you have, you know, class one and class two that predominantly bind at the top of the spike protein known as the receptor binding motif. Uh, an example of those would be uh, the cocktail carisarivimab and indimibab. And then you go to class three, which is not bind at the receptor binding motif, but at or, but actually on the receptor binding domain itself. And an example of that would be zotrovimab. Then you can see uh, a reference to up and down. So actually the spike protein uh, can exist in two different conformations. One is in an open position. So that is the up position or in a closed position. Uh, the down uh, position. So that is what's referenced here on this slide. When we look at the mutations, so mutations, as we've talked, continue to occur, uh, and they look at the mutations in reference to the spike protein and how they may impact the binding of some of the monoclonal neutralizing antibodies. So again, the great picture that you see here is in, intended to depict the spike po- protein, predominantly the receptor binding domain. And as you can see on the left-hand side, that purple site is the receptor binding motifs. So you can see some various different binding mutations uh, that occur and where they occur, uh, depending on whether they are occur- occurring in the receptor binding motif or actually in the receptor binding uh, domain. I'm gonna point out just, uh, a couple of them. Uh, so specifically position EA, E484K, one of the mutations, is one of the key areas of substitution that we see in the mutations in the alpha, beta, and gamma variants. And then the L452 is one of the key mutations we see in the delta variant uh, going, going forward. Variants of concern are important and significant in this disease for several reasons. One, certain variants have now become the the largest proportion of what we're seeing in the population. So currently the Delta variants in the United States certainly is the major variant uh, that we're seeing. That's important because these variants potentially have increased transmissibility, which we've seen in the Delta variant. So they're much more contagious uh, than the original uh, wild type uh, SARS virus that we saw. Uh, in addition to being increased transmissibility, they also have the, the variants, the potential to decrease the uh, you know, potency of the monoclonal antibodies. So they reduce the neutralization of the monoclonal antibodies. And we see that with the Delta variant, we see that in gamma and beta as well. Looking across the entire globe uh, in terms of COVID-19, you know, unfortunately, at this point in time, just about 197 million confirmed cases and over 4.2 million deaths. You can see the various number of confirmed cases uh, in some of the uh, countries around the globe, uh, some examples. Also looking at how much vaccination, the total doses of vaccine and how much of the population is fully vaccinated uh, and it varies significantly. So you can see Canada almost at a 50 percent 
vaccination rate in their population. And yet some very modernized industrial countries like Japan still have an, a fully vaccinated rate in their population um, below 10%. And certainly some, if some countries such as uh, Brazil in the South America is just hovering around 15% in South Africa, you know, at a low of 2%. In the United States, uh, at this point, we've had over 33 million confirmed cases, and we now are hovering around almost a 50% uh, vaccination rate in our population. But that varies significantly, as we know, state by state and even county by county. Treatment guidelines. So the NIH has produced management uh, treatment guidelines to aid in the care of patients with COVID-19. A lot of detailed recommendations on all aspects of care, especially uh, with respect to the different severity levels of the patients that have COVID-19. And we see treatment guidelines continue to evolve rapidly in line with the new data that, that comes out, uh, you know, week to week, month to month. Uh, and so you can see some of the other societies that have pro produced treatment guidelines as well as the WHO. So in summary, you know, we know COVID-19 is predominantly a pulmonary disease that's caused by the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Uh, we know that the risk of infection significantly increases with age and that certain ethnic minorities are disproportionately affected. Uh, we all indications believe now that early intervention and treatment may decrease the risk of progression uh, with this disease to severe disease, hospitalization, and even death. Multiple monoclonal antibodies uh, are both in clinical development, have been EUA by the FDA, that target the spike protein, specifically the receptor binding uh, domain, and they can be classified as the monoclonal antibodies, specifically where they bind on the receptor binding motain, that domain. Um, but mutations that continue to be a, a, a significant concern for us uh, can impact the monoclonal antibodies' ability to neutralize the virus. COVID-19 vaccines are available, but may not be enough. And we speak, we spoke to why that may not be the case. And the reasons for that again are the virus continues to mutate. And so we may see breakthrough through the vaccines. Uh, there is vaccine hesitancy amongst uh, the population and herd immunity because this is a global disease will take a significant amount of time to achieve. Uh, so we definitely need to continue uh, to work toward effective alternative methods and options uh, to treat this disease. So I thank you for joining us uh, today and uh, have a great day. Thank you.